Well, you're going to have to put up with my preaching this morning. I, I kind of forget how to do this. It's been a little while. So, uh, but if you want to take your Bibles out a while, and maybe we'll get started the book of Luke uh, after a bit, Luke chapter 22. Uh, thanks for those of you who uh, were praying for us on our trip. We put on 80, over 8,500 miles in 32 days, and um, we had a blast. Uh, it was fun to be. You know, it's really nice when you like your spouse. Um, we had all those days together, uh, never apart, and we loved it. We decided we could do more of that, like that. Uh, some of you were praying for us. We ran into some mechanical problems in Colorado and stopped at a Chevy dealership, and they told us they wanted $3,200 to fix our car, and got on the phone with Tom Steffi and uh, decided we're going to try and nurse the thing home, and got it home and fixed it for $526. Life's full of little annoyances, isn't it? Little irritations. When I, we were at the Grand Canyon three weeks ago today, so while you were gathering for worship, Betty and I arrived at the Grand Canyon and I walked out to the first over, and most of everything that we saw, I've never seen before in my life, and walked out to the first overlook and just went, wow, out loud, <laughs> wow. I mean, what else can you say? Pictures don't do it justice. In the visitor center there, and I picked up a book that I'd always been looking for something like this, a comprehensive history of the Native, Amer Native Americans. Picked it up, and as I was getting ready to walk to the counter, I saw another book that I grabbed, and I thought, oh, this looks interesting. Thumbed through it a little bit, reading a couple excerpts, put it down on our next hike to the next place. Uh, I was telling Betty what I was reading, and at the next shop where they sold souvenirs, I picked this book up again, thumbed through it a little bit reading a few more things and I'm telling Betty a few more stories about that I found in it and I finally asked I said would it be morbid of me to buy this book I don't remember what she said but I eventually bought it anyway it's entitled over the edge death in the Grand Canyon gripping accounts of all known fatal mishaps in the most famous of the world's seven natural wonders there's a skeleton at the bottom just for your encouragement Uh, it, it's been, uh, I tell people it's riveting. It's not really well written, but it, it's absolutely riveting. Each chapter is a um, different way that people have died in the canyon from falls in the first chapter and then uh, dehydration, hiking down in the canyon in the summer. And um, it's, it's, you know, some of the stories just hit you like, wow. There was one, this happened back in the early 90s, uh, family and a group of friends from Texas were there. And the dad, he was 38, Greg was a, known to be a prankster. Everybody always assumed he was going to be telling a joke or um, pranking someone. And so he was, uh, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know there are some places where they have railings and other places they have you know, short stone walls um, keep you back from the edge. And um, he was up at this one wall and he found a ledge about three, four feet wide down below the edge of the rim <coughs> that was uh, 
maybe down six feet or so. And so he stood on this wall and he was trying to get his teenage daughter's attention. I don't know what her name was, didn't tell that, but say Barbara. Say, Barbara, Barbara, look! <clears throat> well, she was accustomed to dad's uh, pranks and ignored him, ignored him, ignored, uh, as long as she could. And uh, finally said, turned around and said, what, dad? And he pantomimed, he's on this wall, he pantomimed that he was falling. And disappeared from sight. And she rolled her eyes and said, oh, dad, turned away, and off she went. Well, the party was to gather back at the parking lot by later that afternoon. <clears throat> when they did, Greg didn't show up. And so they went looking for him, half expecting him to pop out behind a bush and say, ah, that never happened. Finally, they called the rangers who began a search. And they went to where the daughter had seen him last. And they found this ledge and they found scuff marks on the very loose stones there. Eventually got a helicopter out with an infrared lens and later that night they found him about 200 feet down. Apparently he had jumped down to this ledge, lost his footing, hurtled off into space. And every time, every time I read one of these stories I think, I don't know these people, it's, it's kind of interesting, but there's a whole lot of people for whom that was a tragedy. Mom, dad, children, aunts and uncles, close friends. You know, we sang in that one song this morning, Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. That's not quite right. In fact, if you would look around this congregation this morning, there are testimonies of people sitting here who'll be in the next service or who are watching online. And there's plenty of sorrow in sight. The day we, after we left for our trip, Brian and Karen lost their 17-year-old daughter in a car crash. Chris deals in the fight of her life against cancer, and there are others in this congregation who have cancer, some diagnosed recently. Keith Hershey had to quit his job a number of years ago at the age of 40 because his MS was taking its toll and he simply couldn't work anymore. In the middle of the night, I've stood and watched as the house of someone in this congregation burned to the ground. I've done the funerals of people who have taken their life and held the hands and prayed with those who tried and failed. The fact of the matter is, our lives are full of tragedies. Rick Warren, in a study he did on suffering, <clears throat> says the vast majority of us are either in the middle of suffering of some sort, or we've just come out of it, or we are about to go in it. And I'm convinced it makes all the difference in the world who we think is in charge of all that. This message overlaps and uh, kind of completes the previous message on God is sovereign that I preached on June 27th, who wears the crown. 
in your universe. And so uh, this is going to be deep waters. I tell people when I teach this. And so let's pray and ask God for his help as we dive in. Father, the, um, the life that we have here on planet Earth proves the words of Jesus to his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. It may seem for a season that there's little trouble and then all of a sudden, we get blindsided. And when we do, we are reminded that there's just a few things that matter in life, that really matter. These tragedies take our breaths away. All of a sudden, our plans for tomorrow are radically changed. The, the circle of friends and family, suddenly there's someone missing there. Or what we had planned way down the road is now we're probably not going to be able to do it. This is the stuff of life. Major interruptions. And who are we at mercy to in it all? Father, the, the words of Jesus to some in his day are so vital. You are an heir because you do not know the scriptures. Because it is the scriptures and the spirit as he takes the scriptures who will guide us into all truth. Oh, how we need the word of God. Because we need you in these great moments of difficulty, sorrow, and tragedy, and trial. And so would you help me this morning as I speak on your behalf that I might speak rightly? Would you help us as we look at your word that we might apprehend rightly, that we might come to a conclusion that will impact our worship, will impact our perception, that will impact our hope, impact our fears. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. My first point is a question really the question of the sermon, who is ultimately responsible for tragedies? Who is ultimately responsible for tragedies? And for the believer, we really only have three options. Now for unbelievers, they have a, a multitude of options. It might be fate, this kind of amorphous, we don't really know what it is. We want to blame some power or credit some power for what happens of fate. Another option that I've been hearing more and more in recent years is the universe. <laughs> the universe decided, I don't know what the universe is, but especially for people who don't really perceive that there is a God, there's got to be some alternate in charge. But for us as Christians, there are really 
only several options. One, things go bad, Satan's to blame. Now, he's an easy mark because he doesn't like us, he doesn't like you, he doesn't like God. Revelation chapter 12, I think it's verse 17, it's about, talks about um, the devil turning to declare war on God's people. You are a target. You have crosshair on your back, and I do too, if we love Jesus. So maybe it's Satan. We blame him. Or maybe it's God. Maybe he's, after he, all, he's all-powerful, maybe he's responsible. Or, and this is the one that most people will appeal to, both Christian and non-Christian. It's human free will. That God has so designed the universe that he ties his own hands and says free will will trump whatever, uh, whatever I may otherwise choose. I'll show you a clip from Bruce Almighty. Um, not normal we show Bruce Almighty in church, but if you don't know the plot, it's a story about um, Bruce, TV reporter, who has been lately complaining about the effectiveness of God's leadership of the universe. And so God sets up an appointment and meets with him and says, fine, let's see if you can do it better. For three weeks, I'm going to go on vacation and you're going to have my powers. And look at what he tells Bruce before he goes on vacation. Look. Let me explain the rules. Rules? Yeah, you left in such a rush, I didn't get a chance to explain. Two extra fingers. Freak me out a little bit. <laughs> I just figured I'd get your attention. I did the same thing to Gandhi. He didn't eat for three weeks. <laughs> anyway, here's the deal. You have all my powers. Use them any way you choose. There are only two rules. You can't tell anybody you're God. Believe me, you don't want that kind of attention. And you can't mess with free will. Uh-huh. Can I ask why? Yes, you can. That's the beauty of it. So here's God telling Jim Carrey, you can't mess with free will. That's just one rule. It's one rule I abide by. Let's see whether or not that's the testimony of Scripture. We're going to do as a case study this morning the greatest tragedy ever. The greatest tragedy ever, and no, it's not the Holocaust, no, it's not Joseph Stalin killing 60 million of his own people, no, it's not the Taliban taking over Afghanistan again today. It is that the eternal Son of God was murdered. The greatest tragedy ever. You say, why? Well, first of all, <clears throat> he was killed by the people that he created. John chapter 1 says Jesus created, the eternal Son of God created everything that was created with his Father. He made Pilate's hands, washed them and said, I, 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 I'm, I find this man innocent. I, blood be on your hands. He made the hands of the Roman soldier who picked up the whip and scourged his back, who thrust the crown of thorns on his head and who nailed his wrists and feet to the cross. Jesus made those hands. And secondly, he was the most innocent person ever to be found guilty. Now, one of the great tragedies of human history is that there are always, have always been people who have been innocent 
of charges, and yet they have been found guilty by courts and by judges and paid the penalty. But none of them, none of us, that would ever happen to us, none of us are ultimately innocent. We might be innocent of that, what we're charged with, but we're not innocent, right? All of us guilty. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Guilty of something. Jesus was guilty of nothing. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Greatest tragedy ever. You know, when we were traveling around this country, I, I couldn't count the number of little crosses we saw by the road. You know what I'm talking about? See the cross here. Another 10 miles, you see a cross by the road, and <clears throat> oftentimes it has little things, sometimes teddy bears or something, by the cross, and there might be a name that's written on the cross. Somebody was killed in a car accident there. But the very fact that there's a cross there is a picture that this wasn't the greatest tragedy. There's another tragedy that was far worse. And we're going to look and see what the Scripture says about that awful tragedy, starting in Luke chapter 22, verse 3. So this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. <clears throat> verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. And Judas went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. All right. So right off the bat, we have in Satan, a culprit. He's responsible for this greatest tragedy ever. And yet it doesn't end with him, does it? Judas actually will go at the prompting of Satan. He will go and he will counsel with the leaders of how to betray Jesus and then he sells him out in the garden. And we know that Judas feels the responsibility himself because he goes out and take, takes his own life when he realizes the magnitude of what he's done. And we, we know that God holds him accountable as well because Jesus said, for the one who betrays him, it would have been better if he had not been born at all. So Satan's in play here, but so is Judas. And so are other people. Look at Acts chapter Acts chapter 3. This is right after Jesus has gone back to heaven and uh, Peter is preaching to a group of Jewish people in front of him and in the middle of verse 13 we're going to drop in and Peter is saying to the Jewish people and to their leaders this is the same Jesus talking about Jesus who was uh, killed. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. In other words, you're complicit in this. Now he gets specific. Verse 14, 15. You killed the author of life. So now we have... Who's responsible for this tragedy? Well, Satan's got some. Judas has some. The Jewish people and their leaders have some. But drop down to verse 17. We're not done yet. Friends, 
I realize that what you and your leaders, Peter's still preaching, did to Jesus was done in ignorance. It doesn't mean they didn't know that they were killing Jesus. They just didn't know his identity. They didn't know the magnitude of what they were uh, in favor of. It was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he, what's the next word? Must. In other words, there's some sort of plan that has to be carried out. He must suffer these things. Now, who do the prophets speak for? When the prophets speak, who do they speak for? God. They don't say anything that God doesn't tell them to say to the people. They speak for God to the people. Now, sometimes what they say, <clears throat> what they say is God rebuking them for what they're doing, but sometimes what they say are things that God's going to have happen in the future. And that was the case with the Messiah. So in saying that God was fulfilling all that the prophets had foretold, it wasn't just that God was carrying out what the prophets foretold, but God was carrying out what the prophets foretold that he had told them to tell the Jews. And if you think I'm stretching this, look back at chapter 2, verse 23. Again, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaching this uh, powerfully impactful sermon. And he's telling the people about uh, Jesus and about how he had been put to death. Verse 23, but God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. greatest tragedy ever Satan has complicity people have complicity but behind it all is the glorious maker of the universe in other words God is ultimately the architect but other forces carry out his plans we call them secondary Causes. By the way, in instances like this where Satan is operating and God is also operating, they have radically different agendas. Satan is out to destroy us. And God is out to mature us. Satan is out to destroy you, but God is out to mature This is what we call God's providence, his purposeful working out of his plan in the world and among people. Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. Now, the year I was born was the year that Harry Truman stepped down as the 33rd president of the United States. He'd been president for eight years. And his first year was 1945, the final year of World War II. And that year, I think it was in August, two bomber pilots flew over Japan. One was Ma uh, Colonel Paul Tibbetts, and the other one was Major Charles Sweeney. 
In a matter of days apart, those two bombers dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that would lead to the deaths of over 200,000 Japanese people. Now, Major Sweeney and Paul Tibbetts, Colonel Tibbetts, didn't come up with the idea to bomb Japan. They were given orders by their generals, who were given orders by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who were given orders by President Truman. And even though today sometimes our leaders are, are quick to dodge responsibility, on, on President Truman's desk, he had a little plaque. It says... The buck stops here. The buck stops here. You know where he got that plaque? From God's desk. He got that plaque from God's desk. John Piper wrote a book on providence that will, he will probably be most remembered for over probably 50 books he's written, just published in February. It's a doorstop. It's simply entitled Providence. Somebody told me one time they, they read all the books I recommend. So here you go. <laughs> 700 pages of what I'm talking about these couple of weeks. John says it this way. God's providence is that God sees to it that things happen a certain way. God sees to it that things happen a certain way. My second point is simply a summary of this in that God claims to be king. God claims to be king, even to the point of overseeing our tragedies. And we're going to look at a number of scriptures here. Let's start at Exodus. This is a mini Bible study. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Because a fair question to ask is, does God claim, Keith, the things that you are attributing to him? This is the story of Moses and the burning bush. If you remember that, Moses is out in the desert. He's kind of been banished from Egypt, got in trouble there, killed a guy. And he sees this bush in the middle of the desert on fire. And it's not being consumed. It's not being burned up. And so he walks over there. God speaks to him from the bush and tells him he wants him to be the leader of his people Israel to go to Egypt and be the one to lead them out of slavery of Egypt. And Moses says, you have got the wrong guy. Any of you ever said that to God? You have got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong woman. Talk to my brother. Moses says, I can't speak. I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not. And in verse 11, God asks him this question. Who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? Okay, if you were asked by someone who made your mouth, you would say... God made your mouth. But Mo, uh, God's not done. Listen to what he says after that. Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? 
Hear or do not hear. See or do not see. Is it not I the Lord? Is it not I the Lord? You know someone who was born, can't speak, can't see, or can't hear? God is saying, you have a child with a birth defect. That's ultimately me. Remember when disciples asked Jesus, hey, we've got this guy here, he's been, he was born blind, he's maybe 30 years old or something. Who sinned? Did he sin? I don't understand that. Did he sin in the womb? I, I don't know why they were asking that question. Did he sin or did his parents sin? Who's to blame for this? And God said, neither of them sinned. None of them sinned. This happened so that today, when I heal him, God will be glorified. Remember that? John chapter 9, first few verses. This happened so that God might be glorified. God claims to be king, even overseeing our tragedies, birth defects. Look at Isaiah chapter 46. I'm sorry, 45. Middle of verse 6. God speaking, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other. I create the light and I make the darkness. I send good times and what? And what? This is why I say this is deep waters. I send good times and bad times. I, I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. That first line, I am the Lord, there is no other. In other words, I don't have any competition. There's nobody who could checkmate my plans. One more, Lamentations. That little book right after Jeremiah that he wrote to lament all that was happening to God's people. Verse 37 who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? I don't like the translator's pick. If you have a more literal translation, uh, and almost every other translation doesn't say the Lord's permission. It says the Lord, what the Lord chooses or what the Lord decides. Does not the Most High send both wide? Calamity. Does not the Most High send both calamity and good? You see, even though most people appeal to human free will to blame for tragedies, what do you do when there's no humans involved? When a tsunami races across the floor of the Indian Ocean at 500 miles an hour, slams into 16 countries and kills over a quarter million people. Who's to blame? God claims to be king even overseeing our tragedies. And yet, when those tragedies are at the hands of people, God holds 
people responsible for all the evil they do. Abusive husband can't say, oh, it was God's plan that I beat my wife. Uh, all throughout the scriptures, it says God's going to hold people accountable. And scripture makes clear that God is not responsible for sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 <clears throat> says this, And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. We are not robots. We, in fact, the Bible depicts this, that we are so capable of making very real choices that God will evaluate us on them. Just one example. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now judged here when it speaks about believers is not about whether or not you go to heaven or hell. This is about the rewards that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses I think 12 to 15. We're all going to stand before the Lord. The unbeliever is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the deeds done in the body and they will be judged on those deeds and judged for all eternity on those deeds. We will be judged for rewards that we receive in heaven, which I don't know what those look like or what they are. In other words, God is saying, even though he is sovereign and ordaining all this, that all of us have the ability to make real decisions that we are going to be held responsible for. You say, how can both of those things be true? Well, they can't be if it's just you and me we're talking about. But if this God that portrays himself the way he does in Scripture is so mighty and so amazing and so glorious, then it's possible. To say, on the one hand, that God oversees all things, and on the other hand, that we have the ability to decide things, really decide things, and thus will be held accountable for that. You say, well, if God ultimately ordains even these awful things, why is that? A number of years ago, Lee Strobel commissioned a national survey with a single question about a single question. They went all over the country and asked people, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? You probably know what the top response was. It's, it's often the top response when you talk to unbelievers. Why is there suffering? And I have two answers for that this morning. And you may not find them satisfactory, but I think if you have looked in the face of Jesus and you've seen the wonder of the gospel, that maybe you will. The first one is to glorify God. And we talked about this the last time to some degree. To glorify God. 
John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. By the way, how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Oh, good. I'm uh, slow at that. It was just about two, three years ago that I read for the first time. John Bunyan, who suffered a great deal himself. He was a pastor. He spent uh, 12 years in prison. In fact, that's where he wrote Pilgrim's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, He and his congregation were going through a season of great suffering. And he wrote a piece that he ended up sharing with his congregation entitled Advice to Sufferers. He says, it is not what enemies will, in other words, not what they want, nor what they are resolved upon, but what God will and what God appoints, that shall be done. No enemy can bring suffering upon a man when the will of God is otherwise, And so, no man can save himself out of their hands when God will deliver him up for his glory. And then he references Jesus' words at the end of John chapter 21, after Jesus had risen from the dead, and he's talking with Peter on the shore. And he says to him, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go. When you are older, others will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then John says... By this, Jesus explained the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Bunyan continues, we shall or shall not suffer even as it pleaseth him, meaning pleaseth God. And the second purpose in our tragedies is for the maturing of our faith or to mature us. There are numerous places in Scripture. I'm just going to take us to two. One, uh, the first one, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And, and maybe one thing to say about this is that God values our faith more than we sometimes do. God values our faith more than we sometimes do. James 1 verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind, suddenly this applies to everybody, right? When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Wow, that doesn't sound right. He explains, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And so, let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect. That's really the word mature. You will be mature and complete, needing nothing. One more. This is about an actual uh, situation. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I've gone back to this passage so many times over the years when I was in trouble to be able to see the why behind God's hand. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, we think you ought to know, dear brothers, this is Paul speaking, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, in other words, because of what we went through, As a result, we stopped relying on ourselves 
and learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. And I don't know about you, but that's a learning that I have to go back to again and again and again and again. It sounds like Paul got it. I don't. Continually, God, I find God stripping my fingers away from this or that, and he places my hands in his. And nothing does that as powerfully as trouble and tragedy. The intent behind asking the question, who is responsible for tragedies, is not to identify a culprit to blame, but a king to worship. Not to identify a culprit to blame, but a king to worship. Not just to identify what is true, but who to trust in the midst of tragedy. Again, John Bunyan, suffering comes not by chance or by the will of man, but by the will and appointment of God. As the tears stream down our face, as our hands shake at what we've just heard, isn't it good to know that we are not at the mercy of Satan? We are not at the mercy of others irresponsible or wicked choices but that we are as believers anyway at the mercy of one who conquered the works of the devil and he conquered our own rebelliousness at the cost of his own son's life that this merciful one oversees all and I mean all with all capitals. Let me take you back to Lamentations 3 as we close. A couple of other verses in there that I find just powerfully soothing. Lamentations 3, verse 31. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever, though he brings grief he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you are in the midst of great suffering. By the way, um, we start a new series next week on the mission of the people of God. And this is something of a segue into that because the question of the mini-series is going to be what price for mission success and I'm going to give it away right now the price is going to be suffering both for those who go and for those who send when we are in the midst of great suffering and great trial and great tragedy cling to the hand who ordains and orchestrates and carries us through sometimes delivers us out of but in many cases carries us through that tragedy for his glory and for our good. Father, you are indeed king. It would probably be an understate, understatement 
for me and many of us here to say, but we don't, we don't understand. So many times these deep waters, even this pastor out in Nevada that I talked with a couple of weeks ago, don't understand this awful thing that happened to this man in his congregation who looked like he might be the replacement pastor someday. And he said, I'm going to have a talk with God when I get to heaven. And maybe we'll, but I think when we see you face to face, all of this will fade, fade, fade. And so for now, we simply say, Lord, we don't understand. But then we turn our heads and we look to the bright, shining glory that is emitted from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are reminded at least of this. Yeah, the magnitude of your love for us. The magnitude of your love for us is not diminished even in these days. And in you, no one else, lies our great hope. Amen.